Scott, our singer, dropped off a cassette like, oh, hey, you know, here's our demo. And he ended up calling me at my parents' house, offering us a record on Wishing. Welcome to Growing Up Punk, the podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. My name is David. My friend is Aaron. On today's episode, we are discovering free will. Now, this one is a bit different in our Discovering series because Free Will got their start back in the late 80s L.A. hardcore scene, so their name has been around for quite some time. And of course, if you're familiar with this series of episodes, we're typically trying to introduce you to newer bands, or maybe bands that have been around for a little bit, but deserve a little bit more exposure. And in that case, Free Will fits the bill, just maybe have been around a little bit longer. In this episode, I had the chance to hang out with bass player Mike Hartsfield. We talk about those early days, as well as the launch of his label, New Age Records, which has been releasing records since 1988 from some of the most influential bands over the years. Mike also shared two songs that inspired him as a musician, as well as two songs from the latest Free Will record, All This Time, which came out kind of earlier this year, as you'll find out, but also at the end of last year via New Age Records. We also talk about the lost years of the band and what brought them back together just a few years ago. But before we get into the episode, some housekeeping. Go follow us on social media at Growing Punk Pod. That's where you'll find us on Instagram and Twitter. You'll find the links to mine and Aaron's personal Instagrams and Twitters linked in our bio there. Uh, also, you can support us on Patreon. Two bucks a month in general support helps kind of keep the show going, pay for some of those expenses that we do have. And uh, of course, merch. We've got merch as well. That's another great way. You can grab yourself a shirt. We got coffee mugs. We got stickers. You can go find that. That's linked in our bio as well as in the show notes for this show. And of course, wherever you're listening to the show, rate it, review, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. Share it with your friends. Help grow the show. That way, that's always amazing too. But let's not waste any more time. This is my conversation with bassist Mike Hartsfield discovering free will. Okay, so um, this is kind of interesting because this series that we do, uh, the the idea, the intent is to kind of introduce listeners, our listeners, to newer music, newer bands that they may not be familiar with, but this and, and talk about their influences. But this one's kind of interesting because um, you're like so. A lot of times, bands that we talk to, they would talk about you know the previous generation being bands that influenced them, and then you know kind of going back through the lines, but. Uh, through the years, but your band, Free Will, would actually be part of that generation, I think, that's influencing bands uh, over the course of the years, because it's not very often I get to talk to uh, a musician in a band that has, you know, kind of had its start in the in the 80s. So <laughs> this, is, this is kind of fun. This is a new one for me, but uh, I've been looking forward to it since the opportunity arose. Um, cool. But... Yeah, do you remember, uh, the, the question I like to ask people when we first get going is if you can recall the first band or the first album or song or what have you that kind of introduced you to the world of punk and hardcore? Gosh, um, I would, I'd have to say it would be the decline of the Western civilization 
uh, soundtrack nice. because uh, I was friends with, oh, actually one of my brother's friends uh, was just older than me and he liked all sorts of stuff like from metal into punk and he had been more into punk, gotten into metal where we were all just metal heads and mm-hmm. he was in a, at a time when you were one or the other like he his musical interests were much broader than ours and he was a really good musician so like you know he was approachable in a way with like oh listen to the like this is what i listened to and it would be like fear you know that soundtrack uh, just different things happening at that time so that was like i had heard punk but not sat down and listened to it and that was my first introduction and i mean at the time i was you know uh, i'm gonna guess 12 13 ish and very into judas priest and iron mm-hmm. maiden and, and that kind of stuff and that was really my mindset and unfortunately i was a little close-minded to like fully get into uh you know punk and like really give it a chance because uh, i was just too busy <laughs> you know being in the metal <laughs> yeah yeah um that it's funny because that movie's been brought up a couple of times well you, i mean you mentioned the soundtrack but like the the movie the documentary itself has been brought up a couple of times so it's intriguing to me i guess like so so would you say like did you see the movie at any point in time around then or was it more that you just heard the soundtrack no uh i saw it not too long after that and i don't know if it was on like i think usa network had like night flight and those kind of random shows that would play stuff i'm kind of guessing that's where I might have seen it because I remember recording mm-hmm. it on VHS yeah. and just being like, like, like just, I mean, and it's such a time capsule. If you look at it now, the yeah. exclusive access to those bands at that time when, you know, now they've become massive and reunited and, and right. folded and regrouped. And, and uh, I just remember thinking like, wow, it's so raw and it's just so basic in a beautiful way that, you know, I just I just remember being mesmerized by it. And like the um the uh what's it called? I'm having a brain fart. Uh the documentary, the BYO documentary. Uh another bad. state of mind. There we oh, go. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> another state of mind. I just remember the concept of that. Like these guys rode around in a school bus. Yeah. Like yeah. it just seemed like everything you'd want to do. Yeah. You know, I, I still want to do that. And and just the fact that they did it and documented the whole thing, you know, mm. on film, like, yeah. you know, it's, of all it's, things. It's wild. Like another state of mind. Um, that's one that's always stood out to me because it's so growing up in Canada and specifically where in Canada I am, like I'm nowhere near Toronto, nowhere near Montreal, nowhere near Vancouver, right? Like I'm in the middle of the prairies in Canada. And so in that movie, when they come up and they play in Calgary and they spend time mm-hmm. in Calgary. Like my mind is just like, the, I know the first time I saw it, my mind was just like blown because like, that's the scene that I was growing up in at the time. Not obviously then I'm not old enough to have been mm. growing up in it then, but, um, knowing, you know, however many years later, 20 years later or whatever it was, you know, I'm like going to shows in the city and like, that's kind of like the roots of it. And it's captured in an essence on film. Right was just like always blew my mind you know and and a lot of the stuff that they talked about because i mean like where i live or not as much where i live now but definitely in the calgary area it's a lot of cowboy it's a lot of country bars right Right. like uh so it was just a a a different experience but you know when when i was 
going to shows and all that kind of stuff, it was not, I can only imagine it was not nearly the scene <laughs> and like the rough scene that it was then. Right. Like, uh, so yeah, those, both of those films, um, are, are incredible. And I think, I, I think I prefer another state of mind just because with downfall of Western civilization, is that what it is? Downfall of Western? Decline of the Western decline. civilization. Yeah. Downfall of the Western civilization, I believe, is a song. But anyway, <laughs> decline of Western civilization. Um, the the thing that gets me about it, and you, you talked about the time capsule sort of thing, is like to to see like all these like street punk kids and just think like, man, like because that's never like a, a place or a scene that I was in where, you know, it's like just you know, a lot of them in that, in that movie are like homeless and whatever. And I think there was another one that came a number of years later that was like in the nineties. And I'm just like, that's so wild to me, you know, because the, the skate punk and kind of stuff that I grew up on had very much like, you know, it's, it's roots in suburbia, right? Like, it's so like, it's kind of like these different worlds and to see it and not only see it, but see it like very much, um, in kind of those like stereotypical cliche sort of like punk kids, right? Like <laughs> right. it's, it's a lot of fun to watch, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. I love, I love when those, those movies get brought up from time to time. They're always fun to talk about, but, uh, yeah. So did you start, how, how old would you have been roughly then when, you know, you kind of first were getting into punk rock? Um, Getting into it would be probably an overstatement because I think <laughs> I'm it, still like, not into it. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't found my place. Now, yeah. uh, in the 13s and 14s, I was like, you know, aware of it and probably anti in a way just because that's what heavy metal kids were supposed sure. to be do. like yeah. there was no you know there were not arms around each other like it was you know the crossover days yet that came yeah, later yeah, yeah. yeah but um i think when punk was still punk i was you know aware of it and and in touch with it in a way but not not really a fan at that point um it was probably into 15 and 16 and when mm-hmm. we started going to shows and stuff that were no longer metal shows that were punk and hardcore shows yeah so what kind of flipped that switch i guess was it just time and exposure to it or yeah i mean because i was fully immersed in music i mean that was just my pastime you know is either uh you know buying instruments or going to shows or buying records and and doing zines and skateboarding and i mean it it was everything that revolved around uh music at that point Mm -hmm. and i think i got a little disillusioned or probably very disillusioned over heavy metal and like the big stages and the distance between the crowd right. uh, and the bands. And I just like, remember like kind of regressing in a way. And even when I was in the metal, like I stopped going to the arena shows and was more in the clubs. Mm-hmm. And then like, just the more and more, like I, I think I was getting, you know, into the DIY and like the, the self-contained part of metal. Like I just kind of, drifted over into punk and hardcore yeah you know because a lot of it was happening at the same venues in la and so it was kind of an easy transition over and as well as my friends uh in high school were you know uh aware of everything going on and and a lot of people thankfully that i was getting involved with in high school were into all sorts of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like rap was becoming big, yeah. you know, metal was going through its changes, punk and hardcore was doing its thing. And so, uh, it was a really good mix of music at that time. And I had, like I said, really open-minded friends that 
were into all sorts of stuff. So I was exposed to a lot of stuff when I was pretty close minded at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so like, you know, the, the, what I saw hardcore bands doing in 86 and 85 was just like, okay, like this is like, this is so much more interesting to me than going to, you know, a 15,000 capacity arena somewhere and just being like a speck, you know, way out in the nosebleed seats and just realizing, Oh, there's this thing where you can be like pressed up against the stage and the energy (laughs) seemed, you know, so much more valid, you know, and, and, the topics also, you know, like uh, so much of heavy metal was, you know, <laughs> quickly becoming cliche and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fantasy wizards, warriors, dragons, right. and all the different stuff, which I love now and loved then. But like <laughs> when you can, you know, listen to people talk about social issues and, and things that are like really affecting the mm-hmm. people around you and causes and benefits and stuff. I just, I just saw it as something I fit into much more. Right. You know, um, kind of going back to like the documentaries and just not necessarily watching them, but knowing, you know, kind of how well the different scenes across the country were documented at that, at that kind of time, like when you were getting into it, was it still like, you know, was, was it cause nowadays, you know, there can be local scenes or whatever, but bands tour all over the place. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so you can see a band from, you know, Los Angeles, uh, on the other side of the country, no big deal up in Canada or what have you like at that, at that point in time though, were, were you kind of aware of like these different budding scenes or scenes that were well-established maybe even by this point, you know, and it, and it being like, cause I don't know how I'm trying to say this, but growing up when I did, you know, there was like our local scene was just that it was just the local scene. Oh, that's the, the local bands, right? Like mm-hmm. they're fun to go to, but you know, you didn't really expect those bands to be doing much of anything outside of playing local shows. And then, so when one would kind of go out and tour, you'd be like, Oh dang, like that's possible. Right. That's pretty cool. <clears throat> like, so was that something that, you know, like you were kind of aware of at that time, because that still would have been in those days when that groundwork was being laid of bands touring the country. Right. Yeah. And, and to think of like, uh, it, thinking of another state of mind and thinking that on that tour, they thought to go into Canada. Yeah. Like you think of that hurdle with just dealing with the border, whatever that must yeah. have been like, and just going to an area that like, I mean, in the early eighties, how, how did you know what was going to be yeah. on the other side of any phone call for booking a show? Like yeah. Phoenix, Arizona is one thing and San Francisco is one thing, but like, yeah, we're going to go into Canada, this school bus from Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's, it's beautiful in a way of just like rolling the dice and just mm-hmm. heading North or going anywhere, you yeah. know? Um, but to be aware of the different scenes, I mean, I think watching those movies early on and just knowing like, Oh, discord is in DC mm-hmm. and like looking at the labels that were putting stuff out going, Oh, where is, th- where is that area? Like, yeah. what is that? Like, you know, and just the, the immediate reflection of those bands being like, Oh, that's what's going on there. More than likely discord obviously did all the DC stuff, but um, looking at any label from any area that was doing stuff and, you know, zines were the biggest clue. If you would see a scene report in maximum rock and roll or, or any of that, like live photos from a place would show you what a band looked like, what they were called, where they were playing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, early on seeing, you know, uh, 
you know, photos from like city gardens in New Jersey. It was like, oh my gosh, city gardens, yeah. this must be the most magical place in the world, you know? And, yeah, yeah. and just seeing like the Ritz or you know, any venues was like, oh, there's stuff happening there. And, yeah. you know, not thinking like, wow, if you get in a car, you could drive, you know, like I'd gone across country on uh, family trips and stuff, but never thought to like, hey, maybe we should try to go into New York City and, and see right. a show or something. I was going to ask, um, there was, there was a documentary on City Gardens, right? Oh, Riot on the Dance Floor, I think. I was going to ask if you happened to see that one. It was. I have it, not. Oh, I forget. Where did I see it? It might have. It was either on Amazon Prime or on Netflix, but it's pretty fascinating. Oh, awesome! Yeah, uh, Riot on the Dance Floor. If you're looking for something to watch, okay. you could look it up. But I was also going to ask because you you, you kind of touched on it a bit there because you hear stories of people at that time who kind of went on those. I guess you could say punk rock pilgrimages mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> where, you know, they're like, they go to discord house or, you know, they go to SST or wherever they're coming from, you know, they're like, right. they kind of go on those journeys. Did you ever have anything like that? Or was it just like so far away that you're like, well, that's not possible. Uh, well, I think my first journey anywhere was, well, no, that was wrong. Um, I mean, in the late eighties in 1988, uh, Free Will went to play Gilman in San Francisco yeah. or in Berkeley. Yeah. And to me, that was like the first time I'm 18 on my own, like borrow, you know, we borrowed a friend's parents' van and like drove to Berkeley to play a show. And yeah. I mean, we were such a young band at the time. It was it was really mind blowing to go anywhere out of your scene. And there was an open door somewhere where you could mm-hmm. go in and play and like that was my first realization that I loved driving places. I loved going anywhere where there is, you know, a, a beginning and a destination. Yeah. And when you get there, someone is, you know, there to listen to your music and, and uh, exchange ideas and, and expose their scene to you. Yeah. Um, in, in 1990, I drove across country um, with my mom because we had family in upstate New York mm-hmm. and, <clears throat> The guys in up front were from upstate New York. And when we got there, I dropped off my mom and we went into the city and we saw a taping of David Letterman. And we right drove on. to uh, we drove to a show in New Jersey, which is the show that uh, up front played. I met all the guys in Lifetime, all the guys in Mouthpiece and Resurrection and was like 1990, the start of that part of the New Jersey mm-hmm. hardcore scene. Um, and that was a real pilgrimage just to drive across the country, go to a whole different scene of shows and people and drive back. Um, that was like yeah. the, just the most amazing thing because those shows were like really big and, and uh, you know, it was something totally different and amazing to experience. That's awesome. Um, so I got you to pick a couple songs as uh, kind of influential songs on you, and then we're going to get mm-hmm. into a couple free will songs. So I thought we could start with the uh, the ones that were more influential. And mm-hmm. um, so the first song that you sent me was uh, by Verbal Assault, and it's the mm-hmm. song Immersion. This is a Return to the sea, an ocean as home for 
like that that sound that production sound is making mm-hmm. a comeback <laughs> like it sounds like so many hardcore bands today uh, yeah like that like that guitar tone specifically um but yeah verbal verbal assault is a band that for me so i often say when doing these episodes the thing i love is getting introduced to music either a that i've never actually heard of before or b a band that their name has been around and it's just given me an opportunity to sit down and listen to them. And so verbal assault is option B for me where like, I've heard their name referenced and brought up and like all, like not all the time, but numerous times. But this is the first time I really sat down to kind of listen to them. And it's just amazing to hear that sound. They're not alone in it, but that sound that is like coming back, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, But yeah. What, what made you pick this song as one of your uh, influential ones? Um, this one has stuck with me the longest uh, for, I think, a couple reasons. The way it just starts out, like it's just off to the races. There's no little build up or intro to it. Like it just goes. And the fact that the guitar riff is pretty heavy for that mm-hmm. time with a lot of, you know, muffled picking and the the vocal is very melodic. Yeah. And I think that was just such a great mix. And the way that backing vocal comes in and says immersion and there's there's like a weird little effect on it and it just it seems like there was a lot of thought put into it and some experimenting with stuff i hadn't heard before um and like you know using mesa boogie amps which was something no one you know really did um uh and like i think there's just so much to it and and like you said that production value which is like you can hear the bass kind of like the strings kind of fret buzzing and you know stuff that would be cleaned up nowadays mm-hmm. it was like you know and as well the the single guitar track you know a second track not doubling up the bass part and right. just really going like the bass and guitar doing two separate things to where you can hear that bass really shine through um you know and you would have to like in the studio just beat up the production to get it that simple now because i think everything is naturally just so cleaned up and and perfect that you know it's great to hear just four guys knocking it out you know and and i just i just love that song it's just i think it's got so much energy do you remember like um the first time hearing or seeing verbal assault uh well yeah i the first time hearing them, I'm not exactly sure, but uh, we had carpooled down to a place called Fender's Ballroom, which was in Long Beach, which was notoriously gang infested and mm. uh, just a really rough place and where there were just fights during almost every band. And seeing Verbal Assault, only having heard the trial record, um, just seeing them play and just like they had such a different vibe than California bands had and a sound. Um, but it comes through on that recording. It's just, uh, yeah. it's just such a great, such a great sound. Um, but yeah, seeing them live was, 
amazing because we we were all trying to be musicians at the time we're like what is mesa boogie like what is this? you know like nobody had mesa boogie amps and and as far as i know pete was the first guy that any of us saw use them and then you know come 15 20 years later everyone's using mesa 100%. boogie amps yep. and yeah you know, it's like oh okay and you know yeah um uh, you you mentioned you know talking about hearing the bass cut through in that track uh, did you always play bass? Because uh, you like that's your main role in the band, right? In Free Will, yes. Yeah. Um, I started playing bass um, in high school, and like at the in the late eighties, I switched to playing when when I was kind of uh, quitting Free Will for the first time uh, in eighty nine. I got an offer to play guitar in a band called Against the Wall, and mm-hmm. I didn't know how to play guitar, and they were like, "Oh, we'll teach you." And so their guitar player taught me how to play on six strings, which I had no idea how to do. And so like, I really emulate that guy's guitar playing and he was fantastic. This guy named Joe Sprinkle, um, who I just, it just ate up as much of his style as I could and sound. Um, But yeah, then that went to years of guitar, then back and forth. (laughs) That's interesting though, because especially I find in the world of, you know, punk bands, hardcore bands, it's usually the other way around. Like it's a guitar player who ends up learning how to play bass <laughs> just out of necessity because, it, you know, typically everyone wants to play guitar, right? Like be, right, right. be that guy or be that person. And so uh, that's that's intriguing to kind of hear it come the other way around uh, where you played bass and then learned how to play guitar, you know, kind of out of necessity to be in a band. But yeah, um, so that's, that's when, like, what, what led you to the bass in the first place? Like, was it, just something that was sort of handed to you as a kid or how did that start well, for you? Um, my brother had a bass, so I had access to it. And so um, like I'd gotten an acoustic six string guitar when I was a little kid and it was like not a real, real acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had access to my brother had a BC rich bitch bass, like nice. a totally heavy metal yeah. uh, bass and a Rickenbacker amp. And uh, so I had access to practice that. And so when I was in high school and guys were like, Hey, we're going to do a band and stuff. Like I had access to things, didn't necessarily know how to play them, but was like, Oh, Hey, you know, I can play bass maybe. And, and just kind of faked my way through as, as we were in those days, like just trying to put songs together and, and make something materialize. That's awesome. Let's get into the next song that I got you to, you to bring that you picked. And, uh, that comes off the album. Can I say by Dag Nasty? And it's the song values here.
I still, I think that's still the only Dag Nasty album I've listened to in its entirety is Can I Say, which mm-hmm. is funny because um, they're one of those bands where, uh, you know, like from, from the moment someone told me about them and obviously it was this album, I was like, oh, I can, I can get into this. And then I just <laughs> haven't ventured outside of this record yet because, you know, this one's, it's so good. Yeah, I mean... I remember so vividly this record in high school and skateboarding and just being like, just thinking this was the greatest thing I'd ever heard, you know, mm-hmm. and it's obviously Brian Baker's next, or I think it's his next thing after minor threat. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, it's just classic Brian Baker guitars and, and, and again, guitar and bass doing different things at times, which I think really added so much uh, super powerful, super melodic, um, which I think was, you know, people try to do that now. And it's, it's almost like forced in a way mm-hmm. to where this was just, you know, I think such a raw energy um, and as well as a great reflection of recording technology at that time, right? you know, just not overproduced, um, uh, produced a little bit better than the verbal assault record. Sure. Um, yeah. But but just so well put together and the songwriting just is excellent. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time you like, so like with, with that whole DC scene um, at what point in time, I'm just like, at what point in time would you have been kind of discovering those bands? Was it more around this era here? Like, you know, post minor threat sort of stuff, or were you on board with like, were you, were you familiar with like bad brains and minor threat, like sort of those earlier hardcore years? I was aware of Minor Threat and had heard them because we had a group of guys that would always go skateboarding and somebody always brought, you know, a portable tape player or we park the car close enough and and turn up whatever we were listening to. But Dag Nasty was like one of the first bands like I owned, I mean, a a copy of a cassette. Um, And the first band, you know, it's funny, uh, the first band I really fell in love with that was from DC was Embrace. Sure. And yeah. and I heard Embrace on a uh, a college radio station. And it was the fir- like my first most vivid example of heard a song, gotta go buy the record. Right. And cool. and and you know, luckily it was KXLU, the station that operates out of Loyola Marymount College in LA. And we could get the signal at my house, which was like way out in the woods. And I would, it was midnight to two, I think, midnight to one. But I would put a cassette in the tape player and then just tape the show. Right. And when yeah. the cassette would click off, it would wake me up and I'd flip the tape over <laughs> and and record the other part. And then it would click and I'd get up in the morning. And, yeah. and I just remember, I remember the guy vividly saying and that was Embrace. And I was like, just blown away. Like, where do you like at this record? And then going into Hollywood to a record store and just, I've got to buy this record. Like, I've just got it. And just soaking in it and just listening to it going, okay. And then, like, kind of rediscovering or discovering Minor Threat. Like, oh, okay. Like, starting to put the puzzle pieces together of Mm -hmm. who these people are, where they're from. Did this band even play shows? They were this little, you know, they were gone before they started, it seemed like. Yeah, yeah. And and luckily that was a way to find out about bands was, you know, DJs that would, you know, do, they would play what they thought people would be inspired or, you know, have fun discovering. Mm -hmm. And, and it was funny, 
probably 20 years after that, I met the DJ that played the <laughs> Embrace song. That's awesome. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I ended up uh, working with him and, and we were doing something. Uh, we ended up working in the, in the pro wrestling business together. Oh, oh man. And, are we, I could go down a rabbit trail. You brought up pro wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> That's let's do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he mentioned something about being a DJ on KXLU and like my ears perked up and I was like, uh, what, what was the name of the show and yeah. what was your DJ name? And I'm like, dude, oh my God, like you are the reason <laughs> why I heard Embrace, like, or how That's I heard amazing. Embrace. And, yeah. uh, you know, we went on from there, but fantastic guy. That's awesome. Well, and like it, it's, in, it's fun to think back on. Cause like I can even myself, like this would have been, so you're, you're talking kind of like, I guess, mid eighties at this time. The, uh, I was in my last year of high school. So that was like 87, 86, okay. 87. Yeah. 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 Um, so like, it's just fun. Cause like then even like 10 years later, just like looking back on how things changed with how, you know, people discover music sort of thing, because like 10 years later ish, I would have been doing the same thing, right? Like whether it was, you know, I, I never sat down and recorded a whole radio show, but like having the tape ready to record that song that came on the radio to, to record it sort of thing. Or similarly up here, I mean, it was MTV for you guys, but up here we had much music mm -hmm. uh, and they had like their, uh, they had a show, a one hour show that was on, I want to say it was Friday nights that was called the wedge. And it was like the one hour alternative show. Mm -hmm. And it was like, that's where you were going to discover, you know, these punk bands and these uh, hardcore bands, indie bands, some of these hardcore bands too would end up, they had another show called loud, um, which you know, that was typically more like straight up metal, but some of those like crossover bands that we were talking, well, we didn't really talk about the bands, but the scene, mm -hmm. uh, some of those bands would end up on there and you'd, yeah, those you'd record the whole show and then watch it back. And it was, it's amazing. But then like, even you go, you know, 10 years from there, less than that really. And that's when you start getting into the whole, oh, music is available for me to hold, you know, in my hand and carry in my pocket. Right. Right. Like, right. It's amazing. And, and like, I definitely appreciate, and I bring this up from time to time on the show, I appreciate the kind of world of music we live in now because it's so easy. Like, I couldn't imagine when I was in high school discovering this whole world of punk rock and hardcore and all that kind of stuff, how much time I would have spent not doing schoolwork <laughs> <laughs> because I would have been listening to and discovering music. Like, I, I slacked tremendously in high school anyway so like just how much worse it could have been had i just had this all at my disposal to be like right okay like that band not really that band like that band not real. but then at that time you either had to you know you you had to wait and dig for it via you know the random radio shows that did you favors that weren't just playing you know like the big rock hits um or through like the music videos and stuff like that and then also friends and liner notes and CDs, but actually going and spending money on it going, okay, now I spent 15 bucks on this CD. So I've, I've, I've got to spend some time with it. You know, it wasn't right. nearly as disposable. So, um, I love hearing back stories of like people, they're different ways. They're different ways, but also very similar ways that they tend to have discovered music back, at, back, back in the day as it were. But, um, that's awesome. But, uh, yeah, man, I could go down a rabbit trail about pro wrestling too, but I'd, 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 we'll save that for another time. We'll do an Part entire two. episode just about pro wrestling. But um, yeah, so I, I got you to bring a couple songs uh, from Free Will, 
as well to talk mm-hmm. about because that's the whole point of this is while we get to talk about other bands, the whole point is to talk about your band. So mm-hmm. <laughs> why don't we, before we get into the songs, um, I guess let's go back to the beginning of the band. When did it first get together and like what kind of led to that? Were you still in high school at the time or were you out of high school by this point? Yeah, my last year of high school was 1987. And uh, my friend from high school, Paul, uh, was the guy always writing riffs and always like he was the guy who introduced me to Dag Nasty and Seven mm-hmm. Seconds and, and those kind of bands. And um, he was always trying to put something together. And when I met him, he had already had a kind of skate punk band called Absent Reality going and members were going in and out. And then I kind of joined on bass at the very end of it. And we played like a high school party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just basic for four times, four times, go back and forth on, you know, a verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Yeah. And uh, we had a singer who would just made up the lyrics, like just impromptu, like, oh, OK, <laughs> like he would just practice with a few times, make up stuff. And we have the tape somewhere of him and you can hear him talking about like a guy sitting, you know, over by the spa and somebody sitting in a lounge chair and <laughs> someone leaning on a brick wall. And so it was just, you know, the first taste of trying to, to put something together. Yeah. And um, so we kind of got a little more serious and tried to find guys that were, uh, you know, in the same sort of uh, headspace as we were like, Hey, like, let's maybe try to do something out of this. And, uh, so in the summer of 87, I met somebody that was doing a zine through being pen pals, just like, oh, you're, you're in Wrightwood, California. I don't know where that is, but I'm in California and you could look on a map and go, oh, you're like two hours away from me, mm-hmm. you know, and oh, you've got a drummer. Well, I've got a guitar player and, you know, just, you know, you exchange phone numbers at that point, like, hey, let's just get together. And like, I think I sent him a copy of the backyard cassette we'd made and they were like, well, we're super into seven seconds and we're totally into dag nasty. And we were like, okay, like let's, how do we do something with this? And so uh, we spent a weekend practicing and just kind of like put some of the songs that we had already gone back and forth on and, and refined them a little bit and put real lyrics in them. And like, that was the summer into the winter of 87. And then we played our first show in February of 88. Yeah. Now some of those early shows, I think I read on, I'm guessing it was the new age website, maybe new mm-hmm. age records website. Um, did you did I read correctly that some of those early shows were with bands like The Offspring and and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, our first show was with The Offspring. That's pretty awesome. Now, yeah, <laughs> at that time, obviously they weren't The Offspring. That you know, right? They weren't Smash Offspring, right? right? Like that. That was that was still a few years from happening. But that's yeah. still like a pretty pretty awesome thing. I can imagine you know like years later, like seeing them blow up in that way, like having kind of seen them early on. Yeah, and and it was funny because the first show we played are, was with them, Agnostic Front, No for an Answer, like all of these. You know, Agnostic Front was on tour, but everyone else was like every band in that stew of local bands at that time. Yes. So I mean, it was visual discrimination. It was you know hard. I think Hard Stance played, but it was like twenty bands, you know, and it yeah. was an all day fest at a at a hall. Uh, our singer actually had rented out and booked the show and then like oh well since you booked that show we now have a band so we opened that show 
because like the show was happening and our singer got us on the show. So I think we belted out six songs uh, and a cover. We covered we covered Dag Nasty and Verbal Assault, which is <laughs> which is funny to think about right <laughs> yeah. now. Were they uh, those two songs? No, no, no. that would have been oh, amazing. Uh, I think it was Trial by Verbal Assault and uh, I can't think of which Dag Nasty yeah. song, but but <laughs> I mean that was like the first like dipping your toe in the water, just going you know. It was a really big show to get started on, but I I vividly remember the offspring playing and they literally played for like an hour. And it's like, dude, there's like so many bands here. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are playing an hour. And I I remember them vividly as the band that played too long. Yeah. You know, and just just being like, wow, like what do you remember most about the show? Well, it was Agnostic Front. There was a bunch of scary guys in the crowd. We were nervous. It was our first show. Oh, yeah. And there was a band called The Offspring that played too long. <laughs> they played way too long. That's awesome. <laughs> but uh, it, it was interesting to watch them go, oh, well, joke's on everyone else. Cause, yeah, yeah. You know. um, so when I, I mentioned there briefly, New Age Records, when did that become a thing? Uh, in 1988. So, okay, so still fairly early on. Yeah, so that was kicking off in 88 as as Free Will was getting. And, and one kind of you know, worked with the other because, uh, free will doing so many shows, I was seeing so many bands that hadn't had opportunities to put records out. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like, Oh, well, you know, I know there's pressing plants in California and just like, how do you do this stuff? And and just kind of work my way through figuring it out. It's one of the things that has always kind of fascinated me, like fascinated me about like punk and hardcore and obviously it gets talked about it's part of the ethos the diy thing right mm-hmm. like but just to hear someone say oh i just knew there were other bands that had things like albums they wanted records they wanted to release and i thought i could figure this out like that always <laughs> just like has been something to me where i'm like man i wish i had that either call it confidence bravery or stupidity <laughs> whatever it, whatever it is you know i always wish like that was kind of there but i've just always sort of been the person i'm like you know what i'll just kind of stay in my comfort zone <laughs> stay in my lane right so just to hear someone just you know i just knew there were other bands in the scene they needed to release stuff so let's let's figure it out like but <laughs> well, scenes don't exist without that right yeah and and i knew there were bands and i knew there were record stores and i knew there were studios and i knew there were pressing plants and i didn't know how any of them worked with the other and in yeah. what you know in what capacities and and so it was just a lot of asking questions and and you know figuring it out as i went um but in those days it was very different because there were so many more distributors and over the couple of years early on, so many would go out of business. And so we had a lot of growth and a tremendous amount of loss financially and in product from, oh, ship is 500 and you ship 500 mm-hmm. and like their phone doesn't get answered anymore when you right. call or need payment. Yeah, so yeah. we had a lot of that. Uh, and when I say a lot, I mean a lot. The early 90s were hard <laughs> the mid 90s yeah. were harder and then uh it kind of figured itself out after that yeah um so with with the band back to free will mm-hmm. uh you kind of have a little bit of an interesting story i guess because so obviously we talked about you guys getting started in the late 80s i guess you could say mid mm-hmm. late 80s mm-hmm. <laughs> however you want to word that um but then you guys stopped for a while Mm-hmm. And then if I understand correctly, you had an album that got released without your knowledge whatsoever. 
Yeah. 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 Uh, we recorded a record at the start, if I'm not mistaken. We did a demo in 88. And it was the time where there was a local um, studio that was affordable and everyone was going there. So at the time, like everyone had gone through there for one reason or another. And uh, so we recorded our demo. uh, We duped our own cassettes and sold them uh, at a couple stores and through mail order and it shows. And then um, we went to get some T-shirts printed by Courtney Dubar, whose brother, Pat Dubar, sang for Uniform Choice and did mm-hmm. Wishing Well Records. Uh, Scott, our singer, dropped off a cassette like, oh, hey, you know, here's our demo. And he ended up calling me at my parents' house, offering us a record on Wishing Well, which uh, was just mind-blowing because there was one label we wanted to be on and it was wishing well and and i remember vividly at the time uh we had a joke amongst the guys in the band that anytime we called each other's house and somebody wasn't there we would give a fake name (laughs) and and i was notorious for calling uh, somebody and say oh oh he's not there oh tell him brian baker called you know and then they would know it was somebody in the band so like we did that you know as much as possible and i remember my mom yelling to me hey pat dubar's on the phone and i was like oh okay great you know (laughs) yeah sure it's pat dubar and and he picked up the phone he's like hey mike how's it going i was like oh it's going great and he was like uh so anyways uh, what's hey, wrong with you pat dubar. yeah and i'm like oh yeah it's pat dubar and i'm like why is, why is whoever this is keeping the joke going and he was like uh i can i can give you my number to call me back like this is this is pat dubar from wishing well records you know from choice and i was like oh my god like this doesn't sound like anybody i know and so yeah. i kind of gave him the oh hey you know and kind of tried to explain that story and and he just said, hey, your singer dropped off the demo and I'd love to do something. And it was, there was not much negotiating. It was like, hey, when can you guys get in the studio? Mm-hmm. And so it was just the best offer. I mean, it's just the, that's all, it could have been a major label and it wouldn't have meant as much. And, right. and so, I mean, cause we were going to shows, we were seeing Uniform Choice and like wishing, well, like we would go skateboarding and graffiti Fountain Valley because we knew that's where Wishing Well Records was out of yeah and none of us knew where fountain valley california was right but we would graffiti fountain valley and uniform choice <laughs> and and we just knew there was a city somewhere where these the you know these people existed uh so we went in and recorded the record and that was start of 89 uh we started getting shows with uniform choice and instead and that opened some doors and we actually went back to berkeley played gilman with uniform choice and instead and it was just off to the races like we were in a really good spot and um and the record we started not getting any information on the recording we actually got the test pressings listen to the test pressings and couldn't believe that what we had recorded was on vinyl like we were just rubbing our hands together just like oh my god i can't believe we can't believe it and shows kept coming through and we were doing good and then we stopped hearing from wishing well like we couldn't get a call back and uh we heard through the grapevine that the two people that were at the top of wishing well which was pat dubar and pat longry both in uniform choice had had some kind of a falling out and the record label had dissolved. So we had our test pressings in our hand with like 
what do we do? Like we didn't yeah. even have the recording reel anymore. Like we just like, we're like, we've got a piece of vinyl for a test yeah. pressing. I'm like, what do we do? And, and so that really soured things. And, and I don't think we really had the wherewithal to like, okay, how do we, how do we keep things moving? And so uh, I was kind of going in a different direction musically at that point and had started playing guitar in the band I mentioned earlier called Against the Wall that was like really a no-nonsense hardcore band to where Free Will was more melodic and yeah. kind of doing our thing. And and I was just kind of like, ah, I think I'm kind of done with this and I'm going to go do something else. And I should have probably tried to maintain both at the time. Um, but I was kind of like, oh, I want to go do this other thing. And they continued on and, and actually became more melodic and, and changed up quite a bit. So I think I was probably in certain ways preventing them from the three of the other guys pursuing where they wanted to be musically. And so with me out of the picture, I think they were doing more of what they wanted and I could go be a hardcore dude learning <laughs> guitar. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was it. And then fast forward, that's the end of 89 fast forward to the end of the 90s i think it was 97 98 uh i heard from a friend like oh i heard uh pat dubar from wishing well went and just raided his closet and just grabbed everything he could sell and sold it off to a label in europe hmm. and i'm like yeah what Pardon? does that mean <laughs> yeah i was yeah. like well what does that mean oh well your record's probably going to come out on that europe label and i was just like like we didn't even have artwork. Like we'd never even yeah. finished the whole process. We're like, yeah. what is he going to do? And it was kind of hard to believe that like anybody would really just go do that, especially somebody that left us hanging and, you know, like what, what's he really going to do? And, and the person that confided in me had played on some of the other records on wishing well. And so he goes, well, don't say anything to Dubar because I'm actually getting a tiny bit of money out of some of these other projects that he's selling <laughs> off. So I'm like, okay, great. So I have information that this thing's happening, but I can't say anything and yeah. save our record possibly from, you know, and so probably within nine months, our record came out in Europe with artwork we'd never seen yeah. and the songs in the wrong order and, and just, our artwork was just ridiculous. Like it was just like a bunch of sheep. So it was supposed to be like, like a takeoff on the minor, you know, minor threat record. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. okay, there's sheep. I guess sheep means hardcore. She, so yeah, like, sheep is hardcore. This, <laughs> this guy just grabbed some picture and, and threw it on the cover with colors and fonts and stuff we never saw. And, uh, and the in information inside was wrong. And it was just like, okay, like what, yeah. what do you do? <laughs> So, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the end of the 90s. And then we just, uh, you know, I had mentioned to the guys like, oh, hey, I heard through the grapevine that this is going to happen. And they just kind of laughed like, you know, whatever. Um, and then fast forward to, what, 2015, 2016, mm -hmm. we got back together uh, and played the John Bunch Memorial Show. Yep. And we did a string of shows with Dag Nasty, which was, you know, com coming full circle in a lot of ways for us. Uh, and then just, you know, started playing and, and writing again. So, yeah. Was, uh, so that record that ended up being released in Europe with the sheep and all that. So that's mm -hmm. the self-titled record. No, the self-titled record is our demo. So okay. that's the demo we recorded in 88. A friend of ours wanted to put it out on a seven gotcha. inch. So that we did in 2016. And then the record that was recorded for Wishing Oil is called Sun Return. Yeah. And that's um, the one I put out. 
And so you, yeah, so you eventually got to uh, fix the artwork, <laughs> right? Right. I, everyone got to see what it was going to look like, and and strangely enough, to get back at him or the <laughs> the whole caper in a certain a, a little portion, I used that CD that had been bootlegged as our master to master the new record which was put out uh, <laughs> oh man oh, yeah man. so i took the sheep cd and just went to a studio and went hey just you know can we fix put, this a little bit yeah <laughs> put, the, put these in the right order and yeah and, you know so. that's that's funny so with the artwork then for sun return was that uh, was that like did you have any ideas back when it was initially recorded or was that all kind of fresh you know, however many, because 2016 is when it came out, I think, right? Right. Well, that artwork came around in 2016. Like the artwork that is on the record. uh, I saw a friend of mine had posted that photo on Instagram and I'm like, oh my, like it just looked so great. And it looked like something that would have come out back then. And it was very wishing well in a way with trees and black and white. And so, uh, but the original artwork, I don't even know if we finished the original artwork Hmm. um but yeah i mean i i don't remember yeah i think we were at that process of like oh so when's this thing coming out and like you know i think it got lost in all the yeah that's fair um so the songs that you picked uh both Mm -hmm. come off the latest record which is called all this time Mm -hmm. and i just i want to clarify did that so so did all this time did it come out in 2021 or did it come out earlier this year because it's listed as 2021 on say like apple music but then on the new age website i think it said 2022 early 22 so yeah we released it at the end of 2021 on a label in europe called unity worldwide okay and then he just wanted to do vinyl and so we handled the digital and the cd so Mm. the cd came out in 2022 Gotcha. Um, so okay. which kind of like we kind of overlapped the winter season with vinyl yeah. first and then digital and uh cds CD. sure so was the reunion for the band like you guys getting back together <clears throat> was that the john bunch memorial show mm-hmm. that kind of was the catalyst yeah. for that and then when that happened were you immediately like okay like we're let's do this or was it kind of was that something that sort of happened a bit over time well the rehearsals went really smooth and not that they wouldn't for any reason but i had been in a handful of bands and a lot of dealing with people certain people was a lot like arm wrestling of just negotiating you know uh people's time or space or you know just trying to make everybody happy and make things still happen Mm -hmm. and uh when we started to rehearse again it was just so easy. Like everyone was in the same place of like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, I can do every Saturday or I can do Friday nights or, you know, and, and originally when we were doing the band, the band in the late eighties, I think the closest anyone lived to each other was an hour away. Right. And which was upwards of two hours away by the time you got through all four members and come 2015, 2016, it's, uh, the closest anyone is is maybe half an hour <laughs> with the furthest away being like three and a half hours. Oh, wow. So yeah. like we've never been close. Yeah. Practi- practices have always been like, hey, let's carve out a weekend, An you event. know, because yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. just because that's how we had to like, oh, let's do a Saturday and a Sunday morning and then everyone goes home. Right. Um, but 
when we started doing things again, it was just like, yeah, everyone was like, name the time, name the place. Everyone wanted to do it. Right. On. And, um, you know, we started writing again and it just became pretty easy. Yeah. All right. So the first song, uh, that you picked is a song called the show. So I had a couple thoughts about that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and foremost, I can really hear the uh, Dag Nasty influence guitar-wise in that song, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on there that reminds me of, of Dag Nasty for sure. Uh, secondly, I'm going to, I'm gonna in my own world, say that when he says, uh, oh, I forget what the lines exactly were, 
but he talks about being up against the wall. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume he's he's making a reference to your uh, leaving the band to go be in a hardcore <laughs> band. <laughs> uh, no, oh, no, uh, I hope. It is now. But- <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the um, it's funny. When we started writing, uh, and when I say we writing, uh, Paul, uh, the guitar player, writes all of the music. And, mm-hmm. you know, is always encouraging me to write music and i'm like no because you do it right you do (laughs) do it correctly right and so i don't want uh, i don't want to ever mess that up so um and between the earlier records and this record paul the guitar player took over on the main vocals okay Um, yeah and so so the vocals do sound a bit different um, but when we were rehearsing and, and we did a lot of COVID lockdown rehearsals where we would just meet for an entire weekend mm-hmm. and just, just go through songs and, and structure things, move things around. And, you know, and when I first saw the lyrics and heard this song, I knew exactly what it was about. And it was, uh, this, the song is about violence at heart at yeah. punk shows, which is different now than it was then. But our time growing up and where we were most influenced by everything was those late eighties and the, what would happen at those shows. And I wrote like, it's funny listening to the lyrics and reading them. I knew exactly the show he was talking about. That Mm. was just, the violence was insane. Yeah. Just people, everyone getting beat up and gangs and metal detectors and guns, like literally just, I'm so glad my parents didn't know or, I was and what was going down, but we would just see guys getting beat up or jumped and, uh, getting pushed against the wall. We were literally, there were fights going on that would just run amok across the entire dance floor and behind Mm -hmm. the dance floor into the soundboard and stuff. Um, so I picked that song because, uh, I really liked, uh, you know, everything about the way it sounded as well as, like, oh, I know the day and experience he's talking about in the lyrics. So, like, we were at the same show, and it, I remember we were at the same show, but if it had happened at any show at this venue, it would have been like, <laughs> like oh, that was just any day at that place. Yeah, um, yeah. So. So, like, because, I mean, the, the line where he sings about their violence makes it hard to enjoy mm-hmm. the show, basically, um, is... Like, is that a stance? Like, do you guys take that stance as a band at all? Like, obviously, uh, uh, like a big, big example of that would be Fugazi, right? Like, Mm -hmm. whether it be Ian or Guy making, you know, stopping shows to be like, that's not happening here. Uh, People just want to come to have a good time. Like, is that something that you guys do as a band? Or is this song kind of just more focusing specifically on that time and that story? Well, uh, it is, I think it reflects that time and that story. Um, and it was at a time where bills were very mixed with a punk band, a hardcore band, it could mm-hmm. be a metal band. And so a lot of the groups that would go to, or gangs that would go to those shows would go there specifically to fight during one band right. because it was the band that they didn't like, or, they were going to fight during the band they did like and beat up everybody who wasn't there for that band. Right. So the violence level in the late eighties at places like Fender's ballroom or the Balboa theater or any of the places that had bigger shows and especially mixed bill was just insane. Like mm-hmm. it was just off the charts. And 
it wasn't for any reason but just people that went to fight and weren't mm. even there for the music yeah, yeah. you know um so uh if that wondering if that reflects how we feel now it's just those kind of things just we don't see anymore at yeah, least in california yeah. yeah i mean the bills are very set up the same way uh with similar sounding bands for the most part and you don't get really crowds that clash like they used yeah. to so it's kind of a time capsule of an experience when we were younger for sure like yeah it, it, it is interesting hearing you know kind of those stories and and like going back to ian mckay you know and him wanting to kind of be done with hardcore specifically because of that right like, I'm right. like man like nowadays when you think about and even not just now but even you know early 2000s i can remember going to hardcore shows and like that was never an issue, right? Like just overt violence. Obviously right. the pits can get a little intense, but they were, you know, it wasn't people necessarily, you, you might have the odd person who's there trying to crowd kill, but for the most part, it's just people dancing, right? And like, right. you right. know, their, their dancing might look violent, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, at heart it is not, you know, so. It's a collective uh, understanding of, exactly. of what's going on. You know what? If you got kicked in the face because some dude was doing a windmill kick, you know, you kind of like <laughs> shake it off. You're like, man, that was awesome. But, you know. Um, yeah. And it was definitely in the days of circle pits. And, yeah. And, and like I said, the mixed bill to be, yeah. you know, definitely uh, something different. But Yeah. Um, no, and I, and I love songs like this where it's the lyrics are very specific. Like I do also love songs where, you know, uh, maybe lyrically it's a little more ambiguous or uh, a little more metaphorical. But um, when when a lyricist, when a singer is telling a story or singing about a very specific moment in time, there's something I love about it because, you know, and he makes it obvious when he sings something about, you know, back in 86, I'm like, okay, right, you, you right. know where you are now, right? <laughs> like there is, we're, we have a period of time that we're sitting in and, uh, and then hearing, you know, as he, as the, in the chorus, he talks about their violence makes it hard and he talks about a skinhead, I think he said going down or something like that, but whatever it was like, uh, yeah, um, I think it was a skin. We, we saw a skinhead fall, which was fall. That's what which was, was yeah. interesting because I remember that exact moment. I was standing on a chair trying to look over the crowd yeah. and I heard just someone get punched, which right. was louder than the music. <laughs> like that's how hard this guy got punched in the face. Yeah. And he was just this dude that looked puzzled surrounded by five guys, yeah. you know? And it was like, that's exactly what was going on. And also in the song, he mentions uh, small town kids with nothing yeah. to do because yeah. all four of us were from the suburbs out. You know, yeah. none of us came from a big city or anything, but yeah. like we had to travel two hours to get to that show. Right. You know, which yeah. was, you know, so far for I didn't drive at the time, you know, yeah. and like we had yeah. had to carpool uh, yeah. for whoever had a license and who would whose parent would let them drive two hours away for a show. Yeah, that's pretty so, that's pretty impressive. Like I, I grew up in a small town, uh, but we were like 45 minutes from kind of like where most shows happened uh -huh. or like from a few different venues where, where the shows in Calgary typically happened. But same thing, like I'd, I'd have to bum rides off of yeah. friends you know and i had one friend who was reliable he had he got his license like basically as soon as he could he had a car and we would go like basically every weekend right like was yeah. was the idea sometimes my parents drove me as you know like they, <laughs> I, which which always boggled my mind a little bit like that they were they were willing like i can remember going to a show where it's like my dad dropped me off I don't know what they did in the meantime because they clearly <laughs> didn't go home but i was there with a friend at a punk show and then you know they're like, all right, well, we'll be back at such and such a time. 
which like I, I think I had to miss part of like the the headline band or whatever. But I was also at such an age where I was like, man, that was amazing. It didn't matter, if right? I, you know, missed half the set of the band that I was legit there to see. It was like the whole night was just incredible. So yeah, the um, fact you got ninety five percent of it was like that's yeah, a win. Exactly, that's a yeah, win. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But uh, yeah, so songs where they get very specific like that, um, I really love it, especially when it's about music and experiencing music there's right. something about it where i'm just like oh like i'm in the room with you all of a sudden you're telling a story <laughs> so that's great speaking of telling a story literally the next song that you picked and the final song we're going to talk about off of all this time is called the story
I like the like depth or layers that that song kind of has, especially obviously towards the end, the different vocal layers that are going on. But um, the chorus, how I guess going from the pre-chorus to the chorus, I suppose it would be the the vocals kind of take on a little bit more. Um, maybe snarl is the word that mm-hmm. comes to mind, uh, and then but then it like quiets down on that bridge and sounds you know quite different from where the song was going and then it comes back in with all those different vocal layers but uh yeah that's that's pretty pretty great song what made you pick this one as uh one of the two that you picked uh this one to me um and you know a lot of what we were doing in in writing we had we had demoed some stuff and and like you were mentioning the layers on the song is mm-hmm. that didn't really show its face till we were in the studio and Paul was laying all the vocals out. And when we heard that layer on the end, we were like, oh, my God, that just, <laughs> you know, it just sounded like so much more than we'd anticipated being yeah. like, you know, OK, it sounds great at practice. Oh, it sounds great on a demo. And then in the studio, it was like, oh, that's, you know, and it's he had the idea and I guess vision to like, oh, it's not done till it's got this little, you know, icing on the top of the cake. Yeah. So yeah. I just remember hearing that going, wow, like we get to play that song. Like I just yeah. loved, you know, the way it was. And, and I have a, a closeness and a distance from the songs because Paul writes everything. So I could, I can say, Oh, I love this song. It's great. But I, yeah. I didn't write it, but yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, but uh, I really like the song for another reason, because this was the first song that we started having backup vocals that I would have to sing. Right. And, that's something I never ever did. And I never even spoke into a microphone plugged into anything mm. for my first 25 years playing music. Yeah. And like, I kind of took pride in like, Oh, say something over the microphone. I was like, Nope. No, nope. I just, yeah. You know, like I just, I don't do it. And then at practice, I'm like, well, guess what? Get out of your comfort zone and just finally, yeah. you know? And so uh, I don't know if it sounds any good, but I do it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, at that, that end part, that's got those layers. I, yeah. Okay, you know, I I would do it and then look at everybody. Does that sound all right? And then just practice, 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 and then started doing it, um, which is very me getting out of my shell because yeah, I don't like the sound of my own voice. I've never like liked doing doing anything involving my voice and the fact of like, okay, guess what? Now I just have to because I want these songs to sound as complete as they can yeah and i need to do that part you know and i'm playing bass now instead of guitar so i've got a slight advantage on it being a little bit easier so i should be able to do that and so uh i've tried and and hopefully done a decent job well you know what um (laughs) nothing about it like at the end of that song uh is i think the selling point of that song and your vocals are a part of that so i mean obviously it comes off really well Luckily, Paul did all the vocals in the studio. Uh, so. Okay, so so what you're telling me is I have no idea how exactly. you sound, and you could exactly. sound horrible. Yeah. And and I might <laughs> and I might have been sent some videos of shows, and I might not have watched them, so I don't yeah. even know. If it oh man! Good. <laughs> well, there you go. Now now we'll just we'll never know. We'll say that's you on there, and yes. you sounded great. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I opened my mouth, and there's a picture taken. Oh, he's he guess he's doing it. Who knows yeah, how it sounds? Exactly. Um, oh, that's that's too funny. But uh, I mean, that's sometimes the way it works, right? Like yeah. in the studio, but, uh, and you, you got to figure out how to do it live. Um, right. So, and if no one has told you to stop yet, <laughs> I think you're doing okay. You know, when you look around at everyone and they're yeah. not being like, and they're not giving you that dirty look, like what the, 
who told you to do that? Like, yeah, they're not plugging their noses, so uh, yeah. hopefully it's it's adequate. I think you're doing okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, man, this was honestly a lot of fun. I enjoyed kind of getting to talk about, um, you know, a little bit more, getting a little bit more into the history of of uh, punk and hardcore is always fun. Like, I love reading about that time and watching documentaries and stuff, but it's always fun yeah. to get to talk to people who actually got to experience it. So, yeah. Um, because yeah, that was well. I shouldn't say well before my time. It was before my time, though. Yes. yes. Um, so so yeah, that that's awesome. And this was this was a lot of fun. And the new record, I've I listened like today. I don't know how many times I listened to it because it was just like I'd 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 go back and forth between the playlist, which obviously was short enough at fourteen minutes long, that I'd be like, okay, I need something else to listen to while I was at work. So I just kept going back and forth, listening to the record, listening to the playlist, and um, it was a lot of fun. And the and the new record is is fantastic. I'm glad i got the opportunity to uh to do this and to actually get to discover a new band you know awesome that's always rad so a new old band (laughs) a new old band and that's i mean it is funny because you know you mentioned that the vocals have changed and that was one of the things when i was listening to i was like oh man like they definitely used to have obviously part of me was like setting it aside to the time that those records were recorded and what mm-hmm. was going on in the scene at the time. But I was like, Oh, they definitely, I feel like they're, they're more melodic and the vocals are definitely, you know, a lot cleaner or what have you. And mm-hmm. turns out it's someone else. It's different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that makes perfect sense. And, uh, but you know, I actually had a lot of fun going back and listening to, um, the old records too. Like just cause oh, cool. they, uh, you know, obviously there there are specific sounds that came out of that time, and it just it it slots in there real nice. And you talked about you know a bunch of momentum or what have you that you guys had gained when you know first kind of starting to work with Wishing Well before it all kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, it's kind of interesting to listen to because like would it? I feel like is it fair to almost like say now obviously you guys are back together and you've got a whole new record out and stuff like that, but you're almost like one of those lost bands of that time because oh, for sure for because sure because of how things sort of stalled out right like um so it's yeah, neat to if, be able to go back yeah if there had been even like a first pressing and then the record went away it would have yeah. been very different for us because you know like you said you know discovering a new band like we are we are a new band like yeah. i don't try to and and all the relationships we had in the late 80s are gone yeah you know like we didn't meet the the offspring guys that day we played with them so sure, it's not yeah. hey guys yeah, yeah you know give us give us a <laughs> ring or we're, yeah. <laughs> we're back yeah you know uh so we are really at a point of like yeah new record that was you know not hard to get done but you know navigating shows and the scene again uh, for us in 2022 is very different. Yeah. You know, like just, you know, like uh, hitting up a promoter or something and go, Hey, bef- like while we've got your attention, we, yeah. we were together for two years, then gone for 20, <laughs> for 20. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. Cause when setting this interview up, I was, you know, I asked the question, I was like, well, do we do, you know, like a discovering episode, which is what obviously we ended up doing, or because the other format that we kind of stick to is, you know, like five songs where an artist picks five of their favorites from their catalog. And that's typically, you know, what we'll do with more established artists, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was like, it feels weird, like asking that for a band that's legit, you know, got got together in the late 80s, like, you know, has, has, has been, you know, has its roots as a band, um, 
before some of our listeners were even born. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? so, so it's wild to be like, do we do a discovering episode? But I think it, I think it fits. Um, and, and, and I think it's, uh, it is kind of intriguing to go back and, I mean, obviously we didn't play any songs off of them, but to go back and listen to, uh, you know, the self-titled record and then, um, what was Sun? The Sun Return. Sun Return. I was going to call yeah. it Sun Chaser. Uh, Sun Return and, and just kind of hear, you know, it's almost like a, what could have been in a way, right? Like it's, it's oh, kind yeah. So. Yeah. And it's, you know, we ended up recording the Sun Return record with uh, an amazing engineer and that guy had done what at that time was the last Dag Nasty record, the Dag Nasty right. Field Day record. Yeah. So we were like, you know, writing their coattails in a lot of ways doing yeah. like, oh, these are the bands we're influenced by, influenced by, we should, you know go to the same studio yeah, why yeah. not you know <laughs> yeah makes sense but no man like i said this was a lot of fun so uh so thanks for hanging out with me tonight oh thank you so much this was a blast yeah.